You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome back to Top Traders Unplugged, where each week we take the pulse of the markets from the perspective of a real space investor. It's Alan Dunn here again this week, sitting in for Niels while he's away traveling for the, this week and next week. And today I'm joined by Nick Baltus. Nick, how are you? Alan, it's a pleasure to have you as a host. I'm doing very well. Very, very busy as you know, Q3 is here, Q4 is here. Uh, but I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Great, great to speak to you and uh, looking forward to, to speaking uh, to you in this capacity this week. So um, Absolutely. I'm sure it's going to be a lot of fun. I think it's about, what, it must be about a month or so since you were last on with Niels. Uh, anything, there's been plenty going on in markets and you say you've been busy. Anything particularly grabbing you your attention in markets? Um, pretty much. I mean, obviously, Q, you know, Q, Q4 is here. And it's a good question where we're going to head, right, towards the, towards the year. And, um, you know, I think there's a bit of, um, you know, reluctance at the moment. You know, it's going to be like, you know, higher for longer. Um, you know, obviously, we just had um, the, um, you know, the inflation coming out, you know, small, be- small, small, small upside, but n- not quite substantial. Um, you know, as we were kind of discussing uh, earlier on. So, no, I think it's more about this reluctance and how we see investors kind of getting towards, um Towards year year end, um, you know, we have had some discussions with some that have performed well, and therefore there's a bit of reluctance as to whether they should diversify their portfolio or possibly just kind of getting into a, a bit more of a of a risk off mode. Um, and you know, we're kept busy. Uh, I would say we're kept busy um, with a lot of good requests for um, obviously trend following, which is our favorite topic. But you know, a range of other strategies and a range of other ideas as to how we can diversify portfolios. But yeah, we're we you know we're very busy. Very busy, I should say. Good stuff. Well, we're recording on uh, Thursday, a little bit earlier um, in the week. And so as of the 10th of October, uh, the latest performance stats we have, the SockGen CGA index is down 2.25%. SockGen Trend Index is down 1.73%. And the SockGen Short-Term Traders Index down 41 basis points. Um, so a bit of a reversal from a week ago when all of the indices were up and... Uh, Obviously, I think what we've seen as we've come into October is reversals in um, fixed income and, and currencies. And obviously, we've had volatility in, in, in oil markets and energy markets and, you know, driven by the geopolitical tensions in the Middle East. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, I would say probably fixed income and, and currencies are the, the main drivers there. Uh, any any thoughts on, on October to date, Nick? It's been a challenging month for, um, you know, for the majority, I would say, of the... Um, of the cross-asset strategies in the more linear front, if you like, you know, so whether we look into uh, into trend following, obviously, you know, you gave the stats and, you know, we pretty much see the same type of impact here, uh, or whether we look into, you know, carry-oriented uh, strategies, there's also like a reversion here, um, you know, coming from some of the FX complex as well, as as, as, as you rightly pointed out. Um, so it's been, it's been, you know, relatively volatile, I would say, performance-wise. Yeah. It, is, it is quite true. We've seen some reversion. Yeah, no, it's been a choppy period. Obviously, if you look at the year-to-date numbers, Sukchen CTA down 50 basis points, Sukchen Trend down 80 basis points, and Shorter Traders Index down 2.3%. So it's been very much a, a year of performance fluctuating up and down, you know, a few percent uh, around zero, I would say. And, and, and uh, you know, even with the Sukchen CTA Index at, at, you know, down 50 basis points, you, you'd probably have some managers 
you know, up up five, down five, that kind of range um, for, for Wilkes would probably capture um, the, the majority of, of manager returns. But anyway, we have a couple of great topics to, to jump into today. And um, thanks very much for, for, for bringing those uh, with you today. Um, and we're going to kick off by um, moving a little bit away from trend following as the primary focus to talk about some of the non-trend complementary strategies that you work with in terms of constructing portfolios. And I guess, uh, you know, how you go about that, how you think about that and uh, and, and um, the, the process for that. So so maybe give it, I'll hand it over to you in the sense of when you think about constructing a, a managed features type portfolio, you know, it's synonymous with trend, but what's your thinking in terms of adding non-trend uh, premier or non-trend strategies to to a, a, an overall portfolio so it, it, it's it's a good topic and i think we've discussed in the past uh, and also like other um, other speakers in the in the podcast series i think they have discussed the topic of you know, trend plus um and i think i've made a point whereby you know the definition of where this plus takes us away from trend or it is acknowledged as a better risk management tool for trend it's very vague in my view. Um, I think we've had discussions along the lines of, oh, I do trend following and I follow price moves, but hey, if the market goes up so much, should I basically cut my exposure or should I full scale my signal? And all of those features uh, in the design are primarily um, risk management features in a way um, that we can debate as to whether they are the trend plus bit or simply something completely different. And therefore we should just look at it as, a, as an additional alpha. Now, whether alpha is purely a risk management engine or uh, you know a statistically positive return that we add to trend, it's also to be debated. Um, but you know, in, in in my view, we should be building portfolios, and I've been quite vocal about that in the most prudent risk management way. Um, you know, being very careful about how we distribute risk, um, how we react to price moves, uh, balancing out costs and reactivity, focusing on what is the utility function. Some clients wanted to be very defensive. Some wanted to be much more unconstrained. So I think balancing out and creating a portfolio that in its totality, uh, you know, behaves uh, in line with expectation is key. Now, whether we would move outside to other sources of return, I think it is very important not to cannibalize what we've built already. And that's a very solid trend following system. Um, and I, I'll, I'll give this basic example. Let's say we're talking about carry and we, you know, we want to allocate into markets that you know, have positive carry, which in our mind, it's nothing more than the return we could accrue if nothing moves as we roll down or roll up the curves. You know, we roll down the contango curves, we roll up the backwardated curves, and then being positioned in that favor, it is very likely we're going to go hand in hand with trend in, in, in some times and possibly we're going to go against trend in some others. Um, and what is important to flag, I think Niels, in, in uh, I think earlier this year was kind of making this comment that I very much agree with. When we design trend-following strategies and we look into the historical return, part of what we're assessing is the ability of the assets to roll up or roll down the curves. So it's almost as if we're informing our positioning by the fact that there is carry component accruing as the market, you know, as the, as the time goes by. So would we use that as an additional signal to create directional exposures? I would debate that possibly we shouldn't, or I would argue that possibly we shouldn't, right? And and if I look into trend following, I look at it purely as a way to dynamically, not time the market necessarily, but dynamically adjust the exposure. Sometimes we're net long, sometimes we're net short, 
we make the supposition that those market moves will continue. But if you somehow capture the first principal component of each and every asset class, again, with the cross-sectionality that comes along with it, Andrew basically talks about what? Talks about a few markets are enough to capture the clusters, right? And, 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 and I very much agree with that. Setting aside that I also believe um, that broader diversification has value to bring. But you know, going back to my earlier point, if trend does capture those directional moves, then we should add something on top that at best tries to minimize exposure to the beta moves, whether positive or negative. So I think looking into other sources of return, and I can make a pause here in case you have like any comment, I think we should be looking into designs of strategies that can provide some differentiated return by capturing higher order moves and not just beta moves. And this year, that's kind of my, 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 uh, my last sentence, uh, and then we can expand further on it. This year, with trend following doing relatively okay, March was obviously quite a, quite a reversion month. Now we're experiencing another one. Uh, as you said, the numbers are relatively flat uh, year to date for the for the very for the various indices. Possibly not as much for the, um, um, no, actually even for the short term, right? Or short term trend. Even for short term, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, but you no, know, uh, in in the grand scheme of things, relatively um, flattish. Yeah, exactly, flattish, muted performance. We have received some sort of requests from from a number of investors saying, okay. I love trend following. I now see the value that it brings. I saw it last year performing. What more? Okay. Right. And 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 when you are in this kind of environment of not necessarily choppy markets, but some sort of a sideways market, what do we do? Can we enhance it further? And I think that's where that that's where I want to kind of open up the conversation. Yeah. No, I think that makes sense. And and, and I mean, I think that is a typical journey for most CTAs. Is is you have some managers who are absolute purists in terms of trend following, and, and then you have those who say, well, can it can it be improved a little bit? And not only can it be improved, but can we en- enhance the uh, investor experience a, a little bit? So I had a few, few questions there just picking up. Um, maybe like just going back to the first principles, you know, obviously with trend following, we have a, a you know, a very clear narrative at least if not understanding of why trends exist and persist in markets around speeds of adjustment and behavioral biases and economic cycles etc so when we move into kind of non-trend strategies and maybe to talk about carry first and foremost you know what's what's the rationale for for for, for the existence of of that uh, premium obviously the the economic or the, the the investment data would would support the idea that it is there over time but how do you think about, you know, getting comfortable that it is something that will be persistent? And, and, and then I guess in terms of kind of the, the size of that or, or the magnitude of that premium over time. It's a good question. And when, so what, what is driving, let's say, Kerry, to, to your point? One, one, one thought before diving a bit deeper into Kerry, um, you know, if we think stylistically about asset returns, right? So asset returns, and there's, you know, that's a model free characterization, right? So asset returns um, can be decomposed into two components. It's what we call carry, which is the return we're getting if nothing changes, and then some spot move. And I typically use this basic example, you know, you buy a house, you finance it by getting a mortgage, you know, the price is 100, you get the mortgage, these days you might be paying 5%, you rent it out for 6, 
know, over the course of the year, you're going to make the differential yield between whatever you're getting out of the rent and whatever you're going to be paying back, which is this six minus five equals one percent. And that is a risk-free return, but there is some risk to it. And the risk that the mark-to-market of this hundred dollars that the house uh, costs is going to fall to ninety-nine or ninety-eight, and so on and so forth. So the question then becomes: If I can get carry, if nothing moves, then we can make the argument that in periods that you know there is no significant price movement, surely there is some convenience to get out of carry. Now the question is: What does that represent? And then obviously, if prices do not stay as they are, you end up experiencing some sort of directional moves and that's when trend comes into play. And there's going to be, I think, a third episode, not of the podcast, but of our discussion, whereby when trends break, what happens, right? Because there is a, I guess there is a transition phase before you end up experiencing carry dynamics again. So let's go to carry. Uh, I think carry is one of the most well-studied uh, premia. It started from the, from the currency world. Uh, you look into two different countries, you go for the higher yielding, you know, um, New Zealand dollar at the 10%, and you know, you finance that by the Japanese yen at 1%. You know, you borrow in Japanese yen, you convert into Australian dollars, you make 10%, you have to pay back one, happy days 9%. Well, not necessarily because there has to be a reason why this 10% is there versus the 1%, and that is obviously the expected depreciation in the currency. Now the question is, is that depreciation big enough, in other words, 9%, to eat up your, I guess, your your, your gains. Because uh, that would be the, uh, I guess, the no, the no arbitrage, if you like, situations yes. here. What we find empirically over the years is that this is not the case. And even if there is some depreciation, relative depreciation of the, of the high yielding currencies, this is not enough to eat up the return. And there's all, all sorts of ideas and, and, and academic studies as to whether this premium is justified from, um, from a rational risk-taking perspective. I would say the, um, you know, the quick summary of where this um, premium kind of comes from is from some conditional um, exposure of those higher-yielding currencies to global growth shocks, extreme downside equity events, and therefore broader welfare risk uh, materializing is the one that can drive those returns negative. So this is, this is the first point, um, and this is how, at least in the literature, FX carry is, is, is understood. There's some also some interesting other studies, um, which, by the way, it's, you know, it's, it's a long time since, since I looked into those, but there is a nice study, I believe, in the Journal of Finance talking about how FX carry can be thought as the difference between uh, commodity producing versus commodity consuming countries. And ultimately, this becomes uh, really a dynamic between two types of countries. I think the paper is called something like you know, the, the tail of two countries or something like that. So they use commodities to, to, to try to, to, to give reasoning to, to FX carry. Now, if you take this idea in other markets, and by the way, all I've discussed here is not a univariate strategy, right? I'm not saying that this is a positive yield I'm going to buy and that's a negative yield I'm going to sell. It's a relative ranking. So implicit in the construction, there is some ranking. And implicit in the construction, if we take all currencies, say, against the dollar, we can build a cross-sectional portfolio to minimize the dollar moves or the exposure. So really get out of the dollar that... Frankly speaking, when we do trend following, it's possibly the dominant, the dominant driver of, of the currency universe, right? So taking outside of currencies, um, you know, in rates, I think carry is a well-understood concept. Obviously, we have futures curves. We can look into carry as effectively the roll-down of the curve, uh, you know, higher yielding bonds versus lower yielding bonds, and whether that 
um, is reflecting some macro risk or not, and whether the differential in the yields, if nothing moves, will of course accrue a return. Again, we can look at it, I think in, in rates, people have looked at it both as a univariate as well as a cross-sectional premium, right? So I think the, the challenge that you know, trend followers have faced for years and years up until last year came was that, yeah, most of the performance has come from the fact that you go long bonds and guess what, by going long bonds, you benefit both from the positive carry as well as the defensiveness when yields are kind of, um, are, are falling when a flight to, to safety occurs. That, that, that's kind of the narrative. But obviously last year was very different, right? Because everything was going down or the yields were going up and you, you could still perform from a trend following perspective. Our view is that, you know, setting that aside is a differential yield that we can harvest often try to minimize the spot moves. And spot moves here, we're talking about more like you know, global yields, if, if, that, if that term exists. And I think we can spend a bit more time thinking how we also measure carry in presence of inflation, for example. Because inflation, in my view, can create spot movements above and beyond um, investor activity. And we see these days, right? You know, the, the only thing we're spending our days over the last two years is whether the central banks are going to hike or not which is a forced spot move, right? So we have, possibly we have to take that into account. And I think we know we have ideas as to how we should be doing it. And obviously, I guess, you know, one of the interesting features of curry is, you know, obviously in terms of its correlation profile vis-a-vis -vis trend following, um, you know, obviously they tend to be uncorrelated, um, I would say generally. And, you know, I suppose intuitively you would say trend following is more of a dislocation type of strategy, whereas carry is more of a convergent strategy. So kind of natural complements uh, from, from that perspective. I guess, you know, the, where the purists and the non-purists might uh, diverge is in terms of what's your perspective on adding that to trend? And, and does that then blunt some of those nice uh, risk management statistical properties of trend following in terms of uh, the skew and the convexity? Uh, and is it a matter of not going overboard on, on the carry or, or how do you think about that? That's a very good point. And, and happy to also discuss later how we also think about commodities, for example, in the context of carry. But to, to answer your question, I think it's an important question. Once we look into adding carry together with trend, and by the way, I, I view carry not as a necessarily as a convergent premium, even though mechanically it works this way. I kind of think of it as nothing kind of really happens and, and therefore my futures kind of roll into my spot. Whereas if I think about a reversion, I bring more of a value concept here that I'm trying to identify markets that, you know, possibly oversold or, or um, you know, that, that have fallen in, in, in price or are possibly cheap in the cross-section and then I can form a reversion portfolio, which by the way, we can even go to because I think that's another interesting source of, of return. But you're very right in saying, listen, if I add carry in my trend, Clearly, I'm diluting its ability to be defensive. Uh, so one of the nice studies we've, you know, we've actually looked at is how the various strategies uh, perform across vol regimes or across volatility changes. And by the way, that's a subtle difference, but I think it's very important. Transitioning into a high vol regime is a different market dynamic versus being in a high vol regime. And it's not necessarily the case that something that is performing in a transition phase performs while you're in the high volatility regime or possibly then in the transition down to a lower vol regime. So we've done some interesting analysis and obviously no news to anyone 
in this in this podcast series, strength has this convex profile, and the more defensive the implementation is, the more performance you get when the vol is spiking, but also when it stays high, because by staying high, volatility creates those clusters, and those clusters make the price movements more persistent on the downside. So that's kind of the convexity we kind of know of. When you think about carry, whether cross-sectional or more like time series implementation, it does embed some procyclicality. So yes, it does not necessarily perform when you observe a high vol spike or you remain in a high vol regime, but it delivers some sort of good return in all other periods. So if we take trend in the years between 2010 and 2020, that's exactly when carry was kind of performing really, really well. And this year as well, specifically coming from the FX complex, it's been a very strong year from, from, from a carry standpoint. Commodities too delivered some good performance over the year on the on the carry front. So it can be seen as a complement. And this complement comes at different regimes. So if you go back to my original point, when you know when we see uh, low volatility in WIPSO markets, well, that's when you see the curves kind of rolling down to the spot. And and even if trend doesn't perform, then you get the carry engine supporting with some return. When the markets turn, trend takes turn into it. Uh, and, and obviously you have to make sure you don't, you don't lose too much on carry. So importantly, what I'm trying to say is that, you know, you should not obviously adding a, a highly negatively correlated strategy to trend because then you kind of net everything out. And I think by forcing our constructions to be more cross-sectional versus more directional between the two, we minimize to the extent possible the correlation between the two. One is purely spot driven. The other one is spot immune in a way. Um, and the way within define the combination between the two or more strategies is that we look at it from a, from a defensive angle. And when we look into defensive angle, we would typically define some stress environments, either theoretically or empirically. And we say, well, I really want to get some defensiveness when the market is going down by X percent, or I want to have some hit ratio and I want to be reliable when I'm supposed to be delivering some defensiveness. Now, obviously, this comes at a cost, and that cost can be mitigated by adding carry. So I guess if, if you think about it mentally, you start building some sort of efficient frontier now that somehow balances out defensiveness for carry or delivers less of a carry bleed for a defensive solution, right? So where now we draw the line and we say, okay, we're in this portfolio versus the other portfolio. I think the beauty is that we're in an efficient frontier now. So it's just a matter of a utility function. Right? Well, so, that's something I wanted to ask you. I mean, you, you use the term utility function, which, you know, uh, I, I guess if you ask somebody on the street what's a utility function, they wouldn't, wouldn't know what you're talking about. But we kind of have a sense what, what what it means. But but practically, how do you go from the the, 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 the label utility function to saying exactly what it is? I guess it is, as you say, by mapping different combinations of allocations and showing the, the impact on, on different performance stats. Is that it? So the yeah, utility function, you know, I, I use the term, you know, utility function. All, all I'm trying to say is that a combination of characteristics that align with an objective. Um, so when we look into investments and we speak to, to asset owners and, 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 and asset managers, you know, we typically discuss a problem, an investment problem, and we try to find a solution for it. So they say, well, I want to protect my portfolio and, you know, I'm worried about the equity downturns or I'm worried about, you know, inflation spiking and so on and so forth. I think you asked the right question here because one of the toughest 
And I'm not saying that, you know, in bad faith, but the toughest in terms of a process discussions that we have with clients is to walk through and work through uh, the determination of a utility function into tangible numbers. Because if you say I want something defensive, then I can ask you, like defensive versus, versus what? And then you might say, I don't know, equities. And like, okay, what do you mean then defensive? No, you want something to perform when? Well, when equities fall. By how much? And then you say, I don't know, like 10%. And then I'll tell you, okay, over what period? Ah, yeah, good point. Like, no, over two months. So then somehow we try to contextualize those stress environments together with, 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 our, with our investors, our clients, and then try to work around those stress scenarios by quantifying statistically the ability software and following or carry or volatility carry or commodity carry or whatever that might be the instrument that we try to solve that utility function with and create portfolios that balance out trade-offs. It's all about trade-offs. Everything we do is about trade-offs. So recognition of the trade-offs, acknowledgement, and then working through is the recipe that we typically try to operate under. I suppose the elements that you're trying to trade off between, is that fair to say? I mean, intuitively, it's kind of consistency of return versus uh, uncorrelation to equities and crisis alpha, presumably. Is that so? Are you measuring sharp or are you measuring compound growth versus max drawdown or length of drawdown versus kind of what, 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 how would you def- define the variables? So my, um, I'm, I'm quite, um, I'm quite skeptical about generally long-term measures. So when you talk about sharp ratio, ultimately it's a starting point, an end point, a trajectory through that. And in, if I take a put option between 2020 and 2021, it would look like a, an amazingly positively sharp ratio, but I'm just blindfolded by the fact that it just did this massive jump. And then that's, that was about it. By the way, you know, it, it ended up kind of giving a lot of back, uh, a lot back after after the March um, 2020 crash. But point to point and sharp ratios and long term average returns, specifically when the objective is not just maximum sharp, but it is more about defensive profiles or or more um, uncorrelated profiles. Um, and I would shy away from sharp ratios, drawdowns because there's so much path dependency. Uh, and what I'm trying to look into is specific scenarios which are shorter term in nature because that allows us to improve our econometric understanding or statistical understanding. So for example, we'll say, no, let's find the worst you know, 10 or 20 or 30% of the market you're supposed to be hedging against on a weekly basis or on a three-day basis or on a bi-weekly basis, but not longer. Because the more you add, the more smoothing you add in your in your assessment. And then you say, okay, if I want to build something, how does it perform in those regimes? So that's more like a conditional analysis. And then the flip side is, well, if I maintain that portfolio in good times, how much do I have to quote unquote pay for it? And obviously, if it's a positive sharp ratio strategy over the longer term, which again, I'm not necessarily a fan of just looking at that number, well, you don't even have to pay for it. And I think the problem is this, I tend to say like the search for the unicorn. Oh, I want a hedge that is going to do well every time. Like, no, I'm sorry, it doesn't really work this way. Uh, because there's always a price associated with some hedging activity. So the question is, how do you balance that out now? And then it becomes like, the, that's the frontier now. By combining different sources, you don't want to negate what you already hold. You want to diversify from it without destroying it in the first place. 
So imagine someone say, I mean, let's do anti-trend. Well, I put them together as a zero. So we don't want to do that. So there's a fine limitation as to how diversifying a portfolio can get and not just on the opposite fronts. And maybe talking about implementation for a little bit. I mean, obviously, I mean, there are indices out there, I believe on say currency carry indices, I think, uh, from memory is a JP Morgan or some of, some of the other banks publish, uh, you know, uh, the currency carry indices on Bloomberg. Um, so kind of intuitively seems very easy. You know, you take 10 currencies, you short the, 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 the say three lowest yielding invest in the three highest yielding and then presumably you look across the commodity space and go along where the, um, where you're getting the positive carry versus the negative carry, et cetera. I mean, in terms of implementation, I'm sure you can do, do better than that simple approach. What would you say are, are the obvious things to look at in terms of going beyond the very naive kind of carry into more nuanced, uh, uh, sophisticated approaches to, to implementing a, a carry strategy. So, so I'm a fan of, as possibly now, uh, a lot of people should know by listening to, to, <laughs> to what I say every month or so, I'm a fan of good risk management. So if there's one thing I would, I, I would not necessarily vouch for like top three, bottom three, I would vouch for top half, bottom half as a starting point. Uh, I think there is some value, uh, bringing everything in place, but bringing everything in place with some reasoning. Um, around dollar and risk allocation among them. So, you know, when we start, you know, we basically say, okay, top three, bottom three, based on some measure. Even that measure, I would, uh, um, I would challenge the premise: is it comparable across? So, like, here is the expected return, but that comes at some vol, which is the vol of the spot. So, in principle, we should just take the ratio between the two and have it more like an expected sharp ratio, in a way which is not different to what we're doing trend following. For example, say, okay, this is some sort of historical return, but you know, I want to put it in the context of its own volatility and that becomes like a rich budget, for example. So I'm a fan of, or, or I'm, I feel like I vouch for in finding way to, 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 to create measures uh, in a unified setting, effectively unitless that we can compare across. I am a fan of allocating risks versus allocating dollars. So as opposed to saying, I'm going to go long those markets, I'm going to go short those markets on a hundred dollar, hundred dollar. I'd rather have, you know, a hundred units of risk long, a hundred units of risk short, and then allocate across. And then the other point, which I think is also both philosophical, but equally important when we look into this complementarity with trend following. And that was the point we made in the very beginning. There is some spot movement that sometimes goes in favor, sometimes goes against you when you hold a cross-sectional carry portfolio. Reality is, I don't want to be exposed to it because I have that from trend, right? I, I I don't want to be net positive dollar or net short dollar or whatever that might be the case, right? So, you know, and these are details that we would have to spend some time in the portfolio construction. So, to g- just give you, give a few hints um, on 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 that one, one possibility is that um, we try to control some overall beta or some overall net exposure to a market we want to avoid being exposed to, right? So that's, that's one possibility. Another so, possibility. So, so if the Aussie dollar had a high equity beta, that precisely, might, yeah, okay. precisely. Right. So yeah. let's reduce the overall beta of the portfolio. Uh, no, that is that two equities, like, you know, global equities, could that be some sort of growth shock? Uh, could that be like a GDP numbers? Again, different implementations would make sense, but I think it's the philosophy that I'm, that I'm more in favor of. Uh, the other thing is 
the estimation of cure itself, in my view, should be quite immune to spot moves. And to make a measure less exposed to spot moves, we have to recognize what could be a spot move in the market that, it's in, that, that, that is in a way quasi-predictable. So I think that made the point on inflation, for example, in, in interest rate markets, right? So if inflation is very much elevated and, 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 and real yields are where they've been completely in, a, in, a, in, a, in, in, in opposite terms of what have seen the last 20 years, possibly we should account for inflation in one way or the other and penalize some of our signals before even looking into portfolios. Or I'll give another example. Let's talk about commodities. That's, you know, that's a space I've been spending my last one year. Uh, it's a fascinating world. And you know, the more I get engaged with this, the more I, I get to, to know about commodities. Some of the markets, by the nature of the fact that at the end of the day, there's a physical good that is bought and sold and hedges or producers are, you know, are hedging and so on and so forth, you have seasonality patterns, right? So, for example, natural gas, um, as an example, um, is one of the most seasonal commodities because guess what? Winter comes, there is demand, you know, we don't want to kind of uh, feeling cold at home. So there is some need which is anticipated and therefore you can see the seasonality in the futures curves pretty obviously. Or you look into agriculture and, and how the supply and demand play out around how the harvest season. So there are points across, as we say, the curve, or I guess in the future, that the various players, specifically producers, are trying to hedge out. And that creates, if you like, those seasonal patterns, but it's not something extremely important. The seasonal patterns are effectively predictions of spot moves, right? So the fact that you see a hump in the curve is not necessarily an indication that you can roll down that curve right and you would short that market because you know it's kind of upward sloping and therefore it's like in local contango what happens is the exact opposite as soon as you get closer to that period the price is going to go up so the spot is going to move right let's remember futures prices are effectively the, the, the you know the risk neutral expectation of the spot move effectively right so if there are points in the curve that we feel that are pricing in a spot move I'd rather not have that measure in my carry estimation because I'm going to do the exact opposite. I'm going to be shorting a market that is expected to go up in a way. So once we look into some of those markets, there's a lot of work that we need to do to reduce the impact of seasonality in the way that we estimate carry. So back to my point, it's not just the construction and how we cross-sectionally put stuff together. It's also like how we think about the measures themselves and you know, do they make sense to start off? Can we immunize them to spot moves to the, you know, to the best of our capacity? Yeah, I mean, from that perspective, um, you touched on inflation. And I mean, if you were a discretionary trader, I'm just thinking thinking about where's, where's their value from a carry perspective. You might look at, say, you know, US rates versus, which are, what, say, 5.5%. Uh, UK rates are maybe a little bit below, but, but not that far away. And then, say, QB rates are in the same broad uh, area. They might be a little bit higher now. I can't remember offhand. But, but, you know, so three, three currencies there, similarly kind of five, four and a half, five, six percent rates. Um, you know, if you were to just go with mechanically the best one, you know, you could go all in on the Kiwi dollar. Is there a more sophisticated way? Obviously, you're touching on some of the things in terms of controlling for beta, looking at the future spot moves, et cetera. But would, would you, is real yields to part of the, the solution there of looking at? Uh, inflation, yeah. Yeah, certainly. certainly. So, but I think at the end it becomes 
um, it, it becomes um, a balance between how much of the nominal yield, if you want, uh, and how much of the real yield. Obviously, accounting for the roll down in the curve. So it's 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 almost like a pendulum between the two, and how much attention one should pay on the real yield versus you know the the nominal yield. You, you just hit the nail on on the head. This one. Uh, that, that that that's precisely how we look at it. We talked a lot about carry already. Obviously, in this whole, I know we want to talk a little bit more about commodities, but but also other non-trend strategies that you typically hear in the space. Uh, I mean, there's a whole suite of kind of quant macro, but but re- reversion is another one, which is you know uh, you don't you don't you don't hear of a lot of dedicated reversion managers out there. So it's obviously something that's quite difficult to do. How do you how do you think about kind of reversion strategies in the context of, of kind of a diversified uh, future strategy portfolio? This is one of the more interesting ones because when we talk about trend, um, we say, okay, is the market uh, getting into a concentrated position? It has accrued some positive returns, we crystallize the gains and so on and so forth. This is going to revert back, and even I think even the the, the terminology we use implicitly or explicitly states that hey. Let's be worried about reversions. Now, the problem is, if we start looking into reversions in the same way as we look into trend, like I guess we get in a loophole, right? Because we say, I'm going to follow negative one-month trend and positive six-month trend, but the six-month is incorporating the one-month, so like, do I forget about the one-month? So the whole thing becomes so complex, but in itself, I, I don't think that it's true value in trying to capture trend reversions on a directional basis. So when the markets go up, let's say in equities, we go net long equities in trend following. When you know commodities are you know are falling, we go net short commodities. But if there is one, I think, if there is one, I guess, turning point that it's extremely, extremely hard to predict, both statistically and empirically, it's a reversion of beta markets. Right? If I knew when equities are going to go down, guess what? I wouldn't even care about building a strategy that's doing the reverse and trend following. I would just go short the market at, at the right time. So there is a significant challenge, even if the, uh, I guess the, the build out of trends is easier to capture, but the reversion, which is typically more systemic, so like the principal components tend to revert, it's harder. And therefore, the way we think about reversion, and that goes back now to all this discussion about value and, and how this whole thing um, you know, started from, from back in the, in the 70s and the 80s you know, with single stocks and you know, buying value and combining it with momentum. Obviously, momentum in equities is more like cross-sectional, blah, 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 blah. But the context of cross-sectional reversion is basically where we try to get to. So even if trends tend to break, what I'm trying to spend a bit more of my time on is on the cross-sectional reversions. In other words, markets that sold off recover and markets that spiked up moderate. And then look again into this construction from the same lens as we do for carry. So let's minimize the spot moves. Let's not be exposed to the spot moves because guess what? You do get the spot moves purely from your trend followers. So in that context, then the problem becomes that, you know, if we think of it as value, well, go define value in commodities to start off. Uh, possibly we can make an argument about you know, real yields in effects. Possibly we can make an argument about, sorry, real yields in, 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 um, in rates. Uh, we can make, um, you know, an argument about, uh, you know, 
part purchasing for um, purchasing power for for currencies. We you know we just wanted to make it a bit more, how should I say, unified across the markets. And um, by trying to abstract yourself from fundamental value, all you're left with is price. So you're saying is 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 to think more about looking at deviations on a relative basis that that look uh, incorrect. Is that it? Precisely right. So and and if you think about so AQR and you know that was like you know I think Dobby Moskowitz and 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 Lassa Peterson and Clifasness I think it's them three. That's like one of the more classical cross asset papers uh, back in 2013, 2012, 10 years ago. This value momentum everywhere. So they take the value concept and they say, you know what, I, I, I'm going to do value across the classes, but guess what? I have this problem. How do I define it? So then they go about, they, they make an interesting um, transition between how single stocks operate and, 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 and how we can learn from that and move away from single stocks. And they, they basically show that five-year moves go hand in hand with the value premium in, in, in stocks. In other words, if something is cheap today, it is very likely that it has fallen in price over the last five years. So the classical single stock long-term reversion, it's very much related to value. By the way, I think there was like another report, another paper uh, a few years later that looks into single stocks. And they, they basically asked the question, I'm, I'm just simplifying here a bit for the, for the benefit of, um, of our conversation. They say, when does a stock become cheap? Is it when the price falls or when the book value goes up? And by the way, I'm not claiming that today we should be looking into book to price ratios, but for the sake of our discussion, right? So is the price falling or the book value going up? Which of the two is driving the ratio? And what they find is about 85 of the cross-sectional variation, 85%. So the largest reason, the biggest reason why single stocks get reshuffled between you know expensive and cheap is because the price is moving. It's not that the accounting value is moving. So there's a nice fundamental link here, or like empirical link, that you know cheap and expensive in a way reflect some long-term price movement. And then Klifasner says, and 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 Toby and Lasse, well then they say, take that as an example. The connection of value to long-term moves. Let's go outside of single stocks and use long-term moves to capture valuation. So let's buy all the commodities that their spot price fell over the last five years. So to your point, right, trying to find a reversion dynamic. Now, this we can, you know, we can debate as to whether it has played out quite well from a design standpoint and from a design of a reversion strategy. Um, and you know, we, we, we tend to think outside of that, but in a similar mindset. There is some work that we did and, and, and I've discussed, I believe, the first time um, that I was here last November, um, I think Rob was together with Niels, and and Rob told me, "Can you can you just speak to us about this paper you did on 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 skewness, right?" So, you know, this is now very much related because realized skewness. So this is for you know for the for the people in the audience not very much um, you know into into such statistical measures. Skewness is a statistical measure that tells you how. Uh, aggressive bad events have been, if negative, or how aggressive positive events have been historically. So uh, let's say a lottery ticket is typically a positively skewed strategy because you end up paying a penny, a penny, a penny, a penny, a penny, and there comes a time that you make a million. 
right? Whereas, let's say, I don't know, volatility carry, when you sell vol, you're getting the premium from insuring whoever is holding the, you know, the, the put option for the downside, but then when the market gets into a crash mode, you have to pay, right? So then you have negative skewness because you do get on average small positive return, but you know, you crash. Now, if you think about that, I guess, overactivity on selling off or spiking up, then we have another price-based measure using historical returns that can allow us to rank assets by that and say, well, let's look into commodities. Which of my commodities over the last one year experienced the most negative skewness shocks? I'm going to bet on the recovery. What has been in that context of relative ranking the most positively skewed or least negatively skewed? And then I'm going to go uh, short those markets to finance this relative value trade. So again, some sort of a balance between the longs and the shorts to minimize the spot contribution, but now playing a reversion um, uh, premium. And, and, and this is very much complementary to, to, to carry, for example, because this is purely a spot-driven premium. It's not a trend premium, because whatever had this massive shock is going to kind of revert back in whichever direction. There are some nuances there, but that's the principal idea, how we can go from the premise of fundamental value down to price movements, down to extreme movements, above and beyond, let's say, normal distribution and standard deviation uh, movements. But reversion, reversion uh, strategies in general will be heavily neg uh, negatively skewed. Isn't that fair to say? Is that, would you see it that way? No? No, no, no. I, that mean, was... I, mean, uh, I mean, the point would be, obviously, you're, you're standing in the way of the trend, so most of the time you, you, you might get a rise on, on a short-term basis, but periodically you'll get run over. What would be the perception? Is that is that not fair to say? No, that's that, that's a good question. It, and it is not the case um, because what we end up doing is that we, we are building a strategy that is looking to go long and short half and half of the, of the cross-section. So for that to realize negative skewness, it would mean, and that's the risk to it, that the markets we bought that are those that realize the most negative skew will keep on selling off. It's almost like an excessive value trap in a way, if you, if you can think about it this way, right? But it's not, and I think it's important, and that was actually a question we have had when we, when we sent the paper for publication. Does this strategy realize negative skew? So we have, I think, a table that shows that you know, the skewness of the strategy itself is zero, but the selection is done on that basis. I think I think I think that's the that's the important dynamic. But then I think the complementarity then becomes quite quite nice because you know if you do trend following, right? You look back a year and you say, well, the average return was positive. Okay, let's buy. Okay? So you ignore what happens pretty much in the distribution of returns because you kind of care about the middle of it. All I'm saying now is forget about the mean look into the deviations from the mean, because that's how a, an outlier is identified. I'm so far away to what I typically do. And then use that to quantify your trading signal. So we're using the same information in a way, but we look into very different points. Instead of looking at the average behavior, we look at the excessive behavior in excess of the mean. And I think that's a nice compliment if we try to think how we use the same information in different ways to be positioned on a strategy. 
I know you wanted to talk a little bit about commodities uh, and and some specific strategies right now. I mean, we've already touched on some of them. I think. I mean, I, I think we can continue the same in, in in I guess in the same mindset because, for example, what I've I've been discussing right now, the reversion is, you know, primarily cited from commodities, right? The the, the skewness dynamic and. Um, and then we know we, we did this work of extending it across the classes. Um, and, and, and in commodities, it's also one of the stronger premium uh, out there. Um, of course, you might ask me, why skewness is there? Right? You know, why, why should it be compensated from being exposed to, to, to those skew dynamics? And I think there's a number of ways we can justify it. Uh, and that is also covered well in the literature. You can think about you know, the excessive demand for assets that behave like lottery tickets. I want to buy the next asset that is going to skyrocket, but surely you do. So, so the more of us do. They're overpriced relative to their fair value. Exactly, right? Yep. Equally. You know what? I just want to be out of this thing that historically, by the way, two or three or four months back, crashed more than anything else. I'm just going to get out, right? I mean, this is just pure risk aversion. So that's one idea, right? This idea of, 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 of excess demand or excess supply above and beyond the justified one. Um, for markets that exhibit excess tail dynamics. Number one. Number two, and that's by the way, you know, in in, in the context of behavioral finance, it's a bit more of a of an, a, of an irrational behavior, right? In principle, we should look into the stats and all behave like rational human beings, and we have this kind of um, this this agent that is or the invisible hand that is kind of distributing wealth, da 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 da. But this is going against that premise if we're following mean variance principles. There is also another way of kind of justifying skewness or, or, or reversion, and that goes more hand in hand with uh, the cumulative prospect theory, the classic, you know, Kahneman and Tversky kind of Nobel Prize winning theory about utility functions being concave on gains and, 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 and convex on, on losses. In other words, if you give me a dollar, it will make me less happy versus how sad I'm going to be if you take a dollar out of me. It's the same amount that we exchange, but the pleasure I feel from receiving it is much less from the pain I feel if I give it. And that creates, you know, incentives. If all of us behave this way, it creates incentives that we tend to, um, you know, we tend to, 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 to uh, exaggerate skewness dynamics. Whatever sells off, we don't want to hold it, right? And, 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 and whatever spikes up, we want. And the last thing I would say, which I think is primarily uh, documented in commodities, is this so-called selective hedging. So what does that mean? If you're a risk manager, what's your prime focus? I want to minimize risk. Okay, fine. So let's say I'm a producer and I don't want the price to fall. So what I'm doing to hedge it out? Well, I'm selling futures, right? So if the price does fall, at least I'm hedged. Now imagine this. If you calculate how much of a short position you want to have, one principle says I'm going to have as much as I need to minimize the overall vol of my portfolio. But this ignores completely higher order dynamics. What we say, you know, ability for markets to spike up or spike down. Imagine what you want to hedge typically exhibits spikes up. What's your, what's your incentive now? You say, well, I want to short the futures, but guess what? Uh, I'm going to moderate my hedging demand. I'm going to reduce the amount of uh, the futures I'm going to short because I'm really worried this is going to spike up and then this short is going gonna, is gonna to kill me. 
So selective hedging is all about, and by the way, a consumer would act in the exact opposite way, right? Consumer would consume, I don't know, uh, oil, um, you know, airline company, they would want to hedge out, they would not buy the futures, but if this thing is tanking, they would not allocate too much into it as volatility minimization would suggest. In other words, when we try to hedge out, those low frequency but extreme events become part of our decision making. And therefore, you create those excess demand and supply for negatively and positively skewed assets. And that's why in commodities, you, you, know, you, you typically observe those dynamics uh, as being quite, um, quite substantial. I mean, the commodity variation of, 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 of this skewness, for example, uh, premium, um, you know, it has had a very good year. Um, I mean, I'm just looking at some numbers, something like you know, 7% um, for, um, for a 10 vol year to date. Okay. And ju just listening to you there, it strikes me, is the skewness premium quite similar to the carry premium in that sense? E that's a very way. good question. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good question. So I guess the point is, if something is selling off, does it also at the same time rank itself as a good carry opportunity? Yeah, I, I was thinking more from the perspective of if if an asset has that propensity for periodic sell-offs, then people may not want to hold it. So the return from holding it has to be higher to induce people to hold the asset. Uh, and equally for something like um, nat gas, the, you know, the, the the futures reflect the fact that it does have you will have periodic shortages. Um, so so therein lies the the contango and the benefit from being uh, yes. Short so you, on basis. you're very right in, in pointing that out. Um, you know, we look at it statistically. I think the only place that you see some connection between carry and 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 reversion in this regard uh, is in the currency markets and less so in commodities. So they're not completely different, but the overall correlation over the years has been fluctuating around zero, partly because both are trying to minimize the spot contributions in this cross-sectionality. So the occasional correlation that can go up to 20 or 30% is primarily driven by some excessive moves that are equally captured by both. But for example, inequities defining carry is to be debated. But this skewness dynamic, it's much more straightforward because it's purely driven by, by, by the historical distribution. So there are similarities, but also differences. But it's a very good point. You know, you, you actually uh, got it right. Absolutely. Good stuff. Well, um... One thing I, I'm just conscious of time, and uh, I'm just conscious that I, I wanted to touch on a paper by um, Howard Marks. His latest newsletter is out called, uh, I think it's called More Thoughts on Sea Change, Further Thoughts on Sea Change, because he wrote a paper, uh, his, or an investment letter uh, a while ago, uh, talking about sea change. And, and the idea of sea change is basically that we've, we've moved into a very different investing environment now versus you know, the, the 2009 to, to 2019 period, and obviously very evident in, in the rates market. And, you know, the upshot of all of this is, is potentially strategies that, that didn't work in that period may now work, and strategies that worked in that period may now, no, or may now work. I'm getting my words mixed up here, but you get the general idea. How does that apply to all of these, do you think, in the sense, uh, obviously, we, we've, we've made this com comment in relation to trend following because in the 2010s, given that macro environment, we had less directional movement in markets. And now we're starting to see more directional movement in markets. But from the perspective of carry uh, and skewness reversion strategies, how would you see this very changed uh, environment? Is that a, a positive or a negative for them? 
Good question. Uh, I think the straight answer is that um, I haven't carefully thought that through in the sense that, you know, in, in, in my view, looking into those kind of the, those seed change dynamics um, and, and, and the significant regime shift, um, I think the primary, uh, I guess the dominant impact will be on, on beta markets in a way. Um, so I think part of the reason why we all believe that trend following starts becoming an essential component for any asset allocator is primarily driven by its ability to be opportunistic as, as, um, as Katie says. Um, you know, whether the markets will go up or down, trend will pick it up. Uh, I think that's also what, you know, Andrew is, 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 is very vocal about and we've discussed at length. So it is, it is an interesting transition from the perspective of how we see alternative instruments bringing value to asset allocation. I think it is raising the question of whether asset allocation should be more dynamic per se and I've discussed with Niels um, quite at length, uh, I think possibly last time or the, the one before, I, I cannot recall now, as to whether we should be looking into inflation and growth dynamics and be a bit more responsive to those shifts we've seen. You know, I think over the last year and a half, we've seen the growth inflation mix changing three times or four times, depending on your measures, which is possibly how many times, however many times we saw this mix changing over the last 20 years up until that point, right? So the, the, the very dramatic shift in how the economic regime changes. Uh, I think it, it has implications for us allocation. And those implications, I think, go beyond just being dynamic. I think last year was a prime example. However dynamic you were, everything was falling in a way. So guess how you can make returns? By shorting stuff. So by shorting stuff, we have to go to alternatives. So I think the primary, in my view, the primary impact is for directional moves. And therefore, trend has a place in it. Now, the question is, and I think it's a, it's, it's a good debate or a good, you know, good for, food for thought, if cross-sectionally designed carry strategies or cross-sectionally designed reversion strategies maintain their alpha principle to complement trend when trend does not work, like I'll give you an example, a reversion, for example, pretty much mechanically, when you see some volatility movement, it is typically systemic. And there is no cross-sectional reversion dynamics, so the strategy doesn't do much. Possibly, statistically, it falls. But high, you know, high significant spike move in, in vol, it's also um, simultaneously occurring with dispersion. So there's more cross-sectionality that you can come out of a universe following a vol move. And because that cross-sectionality is not creating opportunities, you end up having reversions. So one of the things that we've seen is that reversion helps not in a vol transitioning phase, but in a vol stable phase, but not stable being low, but not changing. Even if your vol is high, it's the recycling phase that you go through the trend reversion, trend started performing, and then you end up having this kind of cross-sectionality. So there's a mechanical element here, which is net of beta, because I think the seed changes about the betas or about the directions of move and possibly about the relationships of the moves. So equities and bonds will become more positively correlated. That, that's the story we keep on discussing over the last like, six, seven months or whatever, right? So I think it's the behavior of the beta moves and the correlation among them. So in my view, yes, trend, we are here, definitely biased, um, you know, is here to address those, those concerns. But at the same time, um, I think those cross-sectional alpha components are here to, to bring complementarity. If, this, if there is one thing that we think quite carefully about 
um, and that's in the commodity space, in the commodity query space. Um, I think that's that's one kind of worth commenting upon. One of the interesting ways of harvesting carry in commodities is by, as we tend to say, you know, we roll our exposure on on a bunch of commodities outside of the curve, and then we short the front. Um, because what we're basically capturing is the historical contango dynamics and the steepness in the curve on the front, right? Now, this construction, specifically if it is done on a, as we say, dollar neutral basis, I'm going 100 long on the back, 100 long, uh, 100 short on the front. Because the front is more volatile, you end up being net short the market. Historically, that was a very interesting defensive complement for us allocators. Why? Because if commodities are procyclic and equities go down and commodities go down at the same time, they have like a growth shock. Then this construction that is harvesting yield at good times, it is also defensive by shorting the front. So you have something like a small unicorn here, like a good defensive for equities and at the same time, a good carry opportunity, except when you see significant backwardation, right? And when you see equity movements that go down, that go hand in hand with an inflation shock and, 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 and prices spiking. Uh, and, and you know, last year was a challenging period for, uh, initially in, in, in the early days of the, of the year was a, a challenging period for some of those curve strategies precisely because of the commodity rally. You know, over the recent days, and obviously we've seen the geopolitics, as you said in the beginning, creating some sort of tension and, 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 and significant uh, energy moves that has been impacting those structures. So to kind of conclude here and, 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 and touch upon the point you made, if we see those inflation dynamics being more prevalent, we would have to think through how some of those implementations that historically have delivered defensiveness at good carry from the commodity landscape to some that becomes a bit more dynamic and possibly tries to address this implicit slash explicit defensive exposure being mitigated as a function of inflation dynamics. So these are some of the ideas that I believe might make some of those strategies better or worse or I guess irrelevant on a going forward basis but you know we put some thought into it. So that's that's a strategy, for example, that you know we put some thought into it. How we can make the strategy from being short time spread to being more dynamic about it. Well, it looks like we're out of time, but that's been very interesting and uh, great to to get that kind of deep dive into your thinking around all things kind of non-trend and all these strategies that that then can potentially be complementary to trend following. So thanks very much for coming on today, Nick. So for all of us here at Top Twitter's Unplugged, um, I'm back again next week for my final week uh, in the chair. I'll be talking to Rob next week. So stay tuned and talk to you again soon. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.